0: The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. All right. Good morning, church. Uh, I love the fact that we can we can uh, shoot little videos with our phones and have folks uh, who have yet to kind of be back in our physical gatherings be able to be a part of this. So thanks for doing that. Hey, if you're online, welcome. If you came to the nine and it wasn't there, that's... I guess the ghosts of our computers fault because uh, nine was the first service that since we've reopened that we had no ability to stream. I don't know what happened. It was just a complete fluke. So um, if you're with us online, good to have you. Hey, uh, would you guys please grab your Bibles and open them up to first Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, if you brought your own Bible, I hope you did open it up there. You can open a phone or a tablet. Uh, we have a lot of text to get through and we don't really put them on the screen here at fathom. We really want you to see with your eyes. So first Corinthians, 16, we read from the English Standard Version, the ESV. That's where we will uh, be. As you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, question, do you, you have a junk drawer at home? Yeah? Yeah, okay, good. I mean, you, you know what a junk, junk drawer is, right? It's where you throw all that random stuff that you don't want strewn haphazardly, haphazardly all over your counter, right? It just You can just take a a, a, a meter stick and just and throw it all into the junk drawer at my house i have i have a junk drawer in our kitchen i have one junk drawer marcy has a junk drawer and our five-year-old harper has her own junk drawer which by the way the five-year-olds y'all are hoarders <laughs> like they should make the tv show hoarders about you if you're five you hoard everything because her junk drawer is like a dark dark black pit um now, uh, ju- junk drawers. Okay, let's talk about junk drawers for a second because there's some pretty common items that I bet we could just, in our minds, in our junk drawers right now, okay? Scissors, chip clips, right? Scotch tape, pens, like those are all junk drawer items. Smaller objects, safety pins, uh, thumbtacks, thumb those sorts of things, maybe a toothpick or two. Hopefully they're clean, right? But that's like junk drawer kind of stuff. Sometimes stuff just gets thrown in there like receipts, Like stacks of receipts. What do you do with receipts from Chipotle? Like just put them in your junk drawer, right? That's where they go. Um, More infrequent things kind of show up in junk drawers. Like does anybody else have a pair of sunglasses that are like so scuffed you can almost barely, I mean, it's like looking through a Coke bottle. It's just, but you just can't throw them away because they're sunglasses. So you keep them in your junk drawer Like, the sunglasses fall in there. Uh, Stacks of frequent shopper cards. I mean, I don't know what they're trying to do by giving us all these frequent buyer cards, but I've got stacks of them that I don't use in the junk drawer. Uh, And then for me, there's all these old tech accessories like just cables and chargers and cases. And I don't know what, what device they go to, but I am unwilling to throw any of them away for fear that I'm going to need them at some point. I just keep them. I don't know what to do with them. Um, so junk drawers are just kind of a, it's a mishmash, right? Um, but then again, there are some personal things that sometimes you can find. Like if I went to your house, opened your junk drawer, I might be able to find some psychologically revealing things in your junk drawer, right? Like I imagine that there are things that you can't part with, but you don't use, right? Like you go on a vacation and you get like a spoon junk drawer, right? From like the Grand Canyon spoon junk drawer. Like what is that? What's that? What good is that spoon other than hanging it on the wall or putting it in your junk drawer? There's knickknacks, uh, the graduation picture that your second cousin sent you that you can't hang up on the fridge because you don't know them well enough, but you don't want to throw it away because it's a graduation picture junk drawer, right? Just throw that thing in there. Good intentions go to junk drawers to die, right? So like uh, n- non-smoking patches or gum, junk drawer, right? Sunscreen that you swore you were going to wear every time you went to the pool this summer, junk drawer, right? You're going to get skin cancer now because of that junk drawer move. Uh, how many to-do lists are in your junk drawer? Uh, seriously, like 12, 13? Do you have a list for your to-do list? Because that's what you need in your junk drawer. Today, I say all this, not as a really interesting introduction, but I say all this because 1 Corinthians 16, the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, the capstone of this letter reads like a junk drawer, okay? It feels like, I'm calling this sermon Paul's junk drawer because 1 Corinthians 16, if you read it, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense at first glance. So uh, as, as we look into this, here's what you need to remember, okay? We have been walking through this book verse by verse since the second week of January, So 35, 36 weeks, we have been working on this book. And today we come to the close and we call it a book, but it's not a book. It's a letter, right? We've talked about this. This is a letter from Paul to a church in Corinth. And really this letter was meant to be read in one setting. Actually, you were supposed to listen to it read 15, 20 minutes. It's over. Okay. It's not meant to be broken up into 35, 36 you know, thirty-five minute sermons, or forty-five minute. If I'm honest, okay, but that's not what that's not what this is meant for. So, in chapter sixteen, just imagine you're reading a letter and you're coming to the conclusion of the letter, and Paul is essentially at this point trying to wrap things up. He's trying to kind of rapid fire a last few things that he really wants you to get. And so, so imagine this 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 chapter like P.S. Don't forget this, okay? P.P.S. I forgot one other thing. Let me add this to the letter, and he just keeps closing this letter with kind of this rapid fire junk drawer. But just like our junk drawers, there's a reason why there's stuff in there. And we're going to see if there's any important stuff for us as we open up his drawer. So here we go. 1 Corinthians 16, starting in verse 1. I just warn you, this is going to feel very disjointed because we're just opening up the drawer. Here we go. Verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So we open the junk drawer, and the first thing we pull out is four verses on giving. Paul's first thing out of his drawer is a bit uh, talking about a collection, taking a collection or taking an offering. And and what's shocking to me is how often and how many pastors are fearful about talking about money. I talk with pastors all the time who are like, I just don't talk about it because I'm afraid to do it. Because here's the truth, it's such a crowd pleaser. Like I see it on your faces right now. Like, you are very enthusiastic about me talking about money. But, but here's, here's the reality, and we've said this before. If we take the word of God seriously, which we do, we go verse by verse, we go chapter by chapter, we go through books of the Bible. If you take God's word seriously, and in God's word, Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also then how can we actually be discipled if we aren't willing to talk about the number one competitor for our heart in this world? So uh, other churches uh, may not talk about giving. Sometimes the pendulum swings and you get churches that all they do is talk about money and giving and generosity and some sort of kind of like money grubbing, fund by private jet sort of thing. Like that ain't happening here either. But, But I'll tell you this. We at Fathom will only preach on money when the Bible talks about it. Okay. Which, warning, it does a lot. Okay, So just settle into that. So let's talk about this paragraph, this first thing out of Paul's drawer here. It seems that Paul had previously uh, in his first letter, which we know was officially the 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians that we have is actually 2 Corinthians. We talked about that in week one. Uh, But it seems that in the first letter, Paul had previously asked them to participate in uh, what he calls the collection for the saints. The collection for the saints. And that word saints, when you see that, that means fellow Christians, not like Saint, you know, Christopher or something. Like it's just that—that that means Christians. A collection for other Christians. We're told that it's going to be sent to Jerusalem, uh, which is the central kind of regional hub church at that time. They might historically be facing a famine at this point, so maybe it's the Christians in Jeru- Jerusalem who need the money. They might just be the distributors of that money to someone else in need. But uh, either way. The, the way that Paul instructs them to take this offering, I think is really interesting. And I think it'll give us some principles that we should consider when it comes to our own giving and generosity. So look again at verse two. We're gonna break this piece down. Verse two, Paul starts by saying, on the first day of every week. So I'm gonna give you principles here. The first principle of this giving is that giving is meant to be done regular. It's a regular giving, okay? Uh, So he says to do this every single week. Hey, Chad, can you put the regular giving slide up? Oh, buddy, I saw your eyes closed. Calling you out on that. Okay, Uh, regular giving, y'all. He says to do it every week. Paul also says to do this on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. In the calendar there, Sunday is the first day of the week. That's the day that the Christians would gather for worship. So giving is to be done regularly. It's it's regular, as opposed to just whenever you feel like it. Just whenever you feel like giving. He also mentions later on in verse 2 that he says, there will be no collecting when I come. Paul's like, give every every day, uh, the first day, every week, um, so that there will be no collections when I come to you, which I think means that this regular giving is meant to collect enough so that we don't need to do special offerings and, and kind of gimmicky fundraising, you know, big red thermometer on the wall sort of things. But rather, as the church gives regularly, there is this regular giving and that will store up and may, meet the needs of the church. Now, the next thing he says, on the, he says, on the first day of every week, Each of you. That's the next phrase there. The second principle is found there, that this giving is universal giving. Each of you. This is not for a portion of the church. It's for every member of the church. Now, if you remember back to middle section of 1 Corinthians, the church in Corinth is filled with very wealthy people and very poor people. And he is saying here, everybody should be generous. Everybody should be giving. It's not just the wealthy that fund this place. Everybody should be a part of this. Everybody's to participate. He goes on, he says, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. So now that brings me to the third principle here. Uh, this giving is to be systematic giving. It's not random, it's not sporadic, but, but he says, put it aside and store it up. So each of us sets aside money. Each one of us sets aside money, and then we use it, we store it up for kingdom work. That's why we budget and plan and and strategize both personally, you're supposed to do this personally. As a church, we're supposed to do this corporately. This is why we have a budget, and this is why we give money away as a church. We call this stewardship. This is the principle of stewardship. It's systematic. And then finally, he says this, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. As he may prosper. The fourth principle is proportional giving. As he may prosper, each person in the church is to give as they are able. So now this flies in the face with what some of us were taught, which is the tithe. The principle of the tithe, that you give 10% right off the top, and that's what God commands of you. Problem is, he doesn't command that of you. Now, it might be a great principle, but it's not a command of the Lord. Right here, Paul says, give as you may prosper. So now hear me, for some... Maybe in his congregation, the very poorest among them, the slaves among them, maybe 10%, they would not make ends meet if they went there. So maybe some needed to give less, but proportional to what they were making. And then for others, maybe the richest in his congregation, a 10% tithe would never be enough for their stage and lot in life. Now, maybe a tithe is a good place to aim at or to start at, but But we, here's this principle. We are to be as generous as we are able to be. We're to be as generous as we are able to, to be. He's saying be generous. There's these other Christians, these saints that are suffering. Be generous. Give to them regularly. Give to them universally. Everybody's involved. Give to them systematically. Plan it all out. And then proportionally based on what you are able to give. So that's the first thing out of Paul's junk drawer. He talks a little bit about giving. Now, the next part, he's just going to turn hard right on us. He's just going to take a hard right on us, and it's not going to feel like it connects at all. Because why? It doesn't. I wish it did. It would make for a much more interesting sermon. But it doesn't. Let's look at verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want you to see, I, I, I do not, I, I'm sorry. For I do not want to see you j- now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective work has opened f- to me and there are many adversaries. Now that paragraph on the surface sounds to me like just ramblings about what he's thinking about doing it sounds like the first century version of like a flight itinerary, right? That's kind of what it seems like. All right, guys, right now I'm in Ephesus. I plan on staying here till Pentecost, which is like spring. Stay here till spring. Uh, Then I'm gonna come for a visit after I go to Macedonia. I'm going through Macedonia. I think I'll come stay with you after that. Or hey, maybe I'll spend the whole winter. Like I'd love to spend some more time. So maybe I'll just spend the whole season with you. That's my plan. But I think there's actually something maybe deeper than this going on here. So, for a second here, let me ask this. Have you ever asked yourself or somebody else or maybe God, hey, what, what is God's will for me to do in this situation? Like what, what, what would God have me do? Like what is, what's God's will for me? How do I live in God's will? What, I mean, imagine yourself asking these questions. Where should I go to college? God, what, what do you want me to go to college? God, who should I marry? Like what, what, who should I go get, propose to? Should I take this job or should I take that job? Should I, should I move to this city or should I move to that city? Like, God, how do I know what your will is for me? How do, I, how do I live in the will of God? I think Paul is actually indirectly showing us how we might do this. So here again, some more principles. You wanna live in the will of God? Here's how to do it. The first thing is you gotta make a plan. Paul starts with a plan, right? He has a plan and now hear me, his plan is for what he is hoping will happen. He has made a plan. He has strategized. He said, I'm going to go here. I'd like to go there. I'm going to do this. I'll double around. I'll maybe stay with you till, spring, or till winter, all of that. And, and, and I think often Christians think that you, in order to be faithful, in order to be faithful to God, to the will of God, you just need to let go and let God, Right? Let the, let the spirit lead you. Like, like Jesus, take the wheel, right? Like that's kind of this pop culture Christian thing. The problem is it's not good advice. It's certainly not biblical advice. Now, I get it. It's a, it's a fine bumper sticker sentiment. So like I understand that. But the reality is maybe take a hold of the wheel. Okay, maybe don't let go of the wheel. On Santa Fe, leave your hands on the wheel, okay? <laughs> Jesus won't take that wheel. You gotta make a plan, you can set a course. You can use your brain and plan forward for what you hope will happen. Okay, you can make reasonable plans for how you think God will lead you. So the first thing you have gotta do is make a plan, but then note what Paul adds in this, his, his, his plan. Here's what he says. I intend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. So many conditional clauses that he adds into his plan. So yeah, make a plan most definitely, but then remain open-handed with that plan. Make the plan, but then remain open-handed. Hold them with an open hand. You see, sometimes, now hear me, this, is, this one's a hard one. Sometimes we think that living in the will of God means that we have all of our uncertainty blotted out. We think if we are going to be faithful to live in the will of God, we think all uncertainty will vanish from our mind. But here's the question. Would you say that Paul is pretty tight with the Lord? Right? Like, I mean, dude's kind of legit, wrote Bible. That's like... I mean, that's pretty good. Not too shabby of a... You would say, yeah, Paul seems to be pretty tight with the Lord. And did you just note how much uncertainty he still lives in? Hear me, you can live in God's will and still face great uncertainty. They're not... In, they are not opposing forces, You can be in God's will and still face great uncertainty. You got to remain open-handed. But then there's a third principle that I see here. uh, And this is what we want to take note of. He says, I think we should persevere. So make a plan, remain open-handed, but then persevere. Now, where do I see this? Well, in verses eight and nine, verse eight, Paul says that he's, he's in Ephesus now. So if you remember back to the beginning of this sermon series, Paul planted his church in in, in Corinth. Three years later, he moves and he starts planting a church in Ephesus. Now he's at Ephesus planting this church, and he's writing a letter back to Corinth to try and address all the mess that is going on in this church. So he's in Ephesus, and he says this in verse 9, a wide door of effective work has opened to me, comma, and there are many adversaries. Now, to me, that sounds like contradicting thoughts. Like when, I, like when I normally think, hey man, God has opened this door for me, I don't equate that with many adversaries. Normally I equate an open door with no adversaries, with no roadblocks, with no issues at hand, but it would seem that Paul does not see that. And I think it's something to note here. An open door does not always mean smooth sailing. An open door does not always mean smooth sailing. This is where a lot of us can get into trouble. I mean, we can get into trouble because often we will determine whether we are in God's will or not based on whether we feel good or not. We look around at our circumstances and if they seem favorable or they seem comfortable or we don't have any perceivable roadblocks, man, we must be right in the center of God's will. But if things start getting rough, man, God must be shutting this door. He may be, but he may not. Uh, You know this, there's a Christian cliche. Uh, Do you know this one? Uh, The safest place to be is in the center of the will of God. You ever heard that? Safest place to be is in the center of the will of God. Hear me. True. Okay. Definitely true. Uh, But it also may be the most dangerous place to be. The center of God's will might be the most dangerous place to be as well. Okay. In my life, every big thing for the Lord that I've been a part of has not come easy. It's never come easy. It's come with sweat and tears and hard work. It, It comes with perseverance So listen, if you sense that there's an open door for you in any way, shape, or form, but there are these hard things that you see through that door, you open the door and you see that there are some difficult things, I would say test those things and don't immediately give up on those things, okay? What if Paul had run? What if Paul had said, hey, there's all these adversaries, so forget Ephesus, ain't planting planting that church. We'd be reading a very different New Testament. We really would. I would imagine that the the letter to Timothy while he's the pastor of the church in Ephesus, we wouldn't even have that. Don't run from whatever your Ephesus is. Don't run from Ephesus. Stay, persevere, trust the Lord in that. So make a plan, remain open-handed and even uh, if and maybe when pushback comes, you gotta stand firm and persevere in that. Um, Maybe that one is the piece from Paul's junk drawer for you today. Maybe that's the piece that you need to hear. Okay. Verse 10, things shift again. Doesn't really fit, but here we go. Verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the the other brothers but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Okay, out of the junk drawer, the next piece that comes out is a mention of two leaders in this church, Timothy and Apollos. Background here, okay. Timothy, first of all, Timothy was with Paul in Ephesus where he is planting this church. Timothy is there. Later, Timothy will become one of the elders at Ephesus. So that's who Timothy is. It seems that Paul was planning on sending Timothy to the church at Corinth after the arrival of this letter to build up and encourage the church. And frankly, he's like, hey, be nice to him. Be kind to Timothy. That's essentially what he says. And if you think about it, after the contents of this letter, after we've studied for 35 weeks through the book of 1 Corinthians, can you imagine being the first guy to show up after this letter has been read to the church? I mean, frankly, I don't know if if, if you're Timothy, if I'm Timothy, I don't know that I want to make the journey to Corinth. I'm not sure I want to be the first guy to show up, stand up in front of the church and the dude sleeping with his mother-in-law sitting in the front row just like giving you the stink eye. I'm not sure I want that job. And so Paul's like, hey, be kind to Timothy. Be nice to him. Treat him well. I need him back. Don't beat him down. And then he, he turns to the second guy, talks about Apollos. Again, if you remember all the way back to January in chapter one, um, Paul's very first indictment against this church is that there's these divisions and factions being caused in the church, specifically around the pastor they like the best. And they would say things like, oh, well, I follow Paul. I like Paul. Well, I like Peter. You like Paul? Eh, I like Peter. Well, I like Apollos. That's my guy. No one follows Timothy. That's... Maybe that's why he's being nice to Timothy. But, but it seems that Apollos was another pastor in this church in Corinth, but he has left. We don't know why. Maybe he left because of just the chaos and the dysfunction within the church. But, but now Paul says that he urged him to come back. He urged him to travel back, but he doesn't want to. And understandably, right, this place is messed up. I mean, everything is falling apart. And, and Paul, it's interesting that he uses the word strongly urged. Like, I would think that some, a strong urging from, a, uh, from Paul to Apollos, Apollos would just be like, yeah, I'll take that. But that's how far Apollos is unwilling to go back to Corinth that he is willing to essentially disobey a strong urge from the apostle Paul. Now, we don't know the exact reason why he won't go back, but Paul's like, I think he's gonna come at some point. Now, why would you put this in this letter? Well, here's the point. Uh, I, think, I think Paul's saying we need to love our leaders well. I, he says, hey, be kind to Timothy like he he he's he's timid, but he wants to come to you. He wants to encourage you. I need him back. Be kind to him. And oh yeah, Apollos. I know you guys might be at odds right now. I think he's going to come back. I think he's going to come around. But you need to love your leaders well. We'll see this in a few verses down. But um, I think we need to love our leaders well. Now now, hear me. This sounds very self-serving, and it is. Okay. I mean, it just it just is. You got to love your leader as well. And I'd, not just me, like I think, please, you can love me well. I'd, I'd take that. That sounds good. Um, but love the elders of your church, love the staff, love your small group leaders, love those who volunteer on the worship team and the tech team and the hospitality team and the kids ministry team. Love them really well, right? Love those kids ministry volunteers like crazy. Love the youth team. I mean, love those who lead and serve you well. We want to outdo one another in showing honor. We wanna love and encourage and build up one another in this church. I think that's what he's saying here. I think he's saying, hey, love these guys well. They're coming to you because they love you and I love you, so love them well. All right, verse 13, we'll just keep turning the page. I'm sorry, this is a boring sermon. It's just, it's chapter 16. This is what you get, okay? This is why we preach through the Bible. I don't think I would have chosen 1 Corinthians chapter 16 to preach on, but we have to, okay? So here we go, verse 13 Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now those two verses are classic Paul. Paul classically at the end of his letters ends with like a a barrage of instructions, just kind of like hammers out a few things. Uh, and, And these final commands are, if you notice, they're all very kind of militaristic in their language like military style. He says, keep watch. Like imagine uh, uh, on a wall in the Roman empire, keeping watch out in the distance for the enemy that might approach. Keep watch, stand firm, right? Stand there, don't abandon your post, but stand firm, be strong, act like men. That has nothing to do with gender at this point, okay? It has nothing to do with gender because he's referring to this militaristic idea and only men were allowed to fight in the armies at this time. But essentially he's just saying, hey, keep keep fighting, keep going, don't give up, like like, fight, stand your ground and fight the good fight. And then he tags it with, with this little verse, let all that you do be done in love. See, being strong and standing firm and acting like a man is not counterproductive to being loving and caring and gracious. Actually, you want to lead like Paul is telling you to lead, you need to lead with love. It's just what Gary and uh, Eric preached to us in chapter 13. Okay, love is the fuel befi- behind all that we fight for. If you want to fight, fight for love. That's what he's saying. So then verses um 15 through 18, okay, these verses reinforce kind of the honoring and loving of leaders and other members of the church, uh, not just the pastors, but uh, everybody who serves within the body. Uh, I'm, not, I'm gonna skip over that, mostly because there's uh, names in there that are really hard to pronounce, okay? So let's jump down to, ver- I, you're not missing anything, I promise, other than me stumbling over them, okay? Uh, verse 19, verse 19, we are almost there. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca. Prisca is a shortened version of Priscilla. It's just a, like a slight, it's like Chris and Christopher. Prisca and Priscilla, okay? So Aquila and Prisca together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So, so he ends, again, this is a classic Paul move. Okay, he ends by sending greetings from other churches to the Corinthians. Again, reminding them that they are not the be all end all, that they are not the point. They are a part of a larger network, a larger family, a larger universal church. That's for us too. This church is not the only church. We are part of a larger Family, the larger church, the global church, the universal church. This is why we partner with and are networked with other churches, so that we are not just about us, but we are about the kingdom of God. And then he just kind of slips that little holy kiss thing in there, right? Which weirds people out all the time, right? The holy kiss. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Can you imagine COVID nineteen? How do you holy kiss? That's gross, right? Uh, but. But the holy kiss, okay, uh, people always question about that. Uh, if you traveled, if you've traveled outside the U.S., you know that in many other countries, uh, the holy kiss, like the, this greeting kiss where you kiss on a cheek or kiss on each cheek, it's a very normative thing in a lot of other societies. I was in Brazil a number of years ago, and uh, man, it was just, everybody's kissing each other. It, I don't know. Uh, as a kind of a pseudo-germaphobe, it was gross. But, um, but I don't want to offend people, so I'm just kissing everybody. It was very strange. Um, but back in first century, okay, back in the Roman Empire, they would greet each other with a kiss. They would greet each in the Roman culture. Uh, they, they, they would practice this. Now, now, here's the difference. They would only kiss men to men, man to man, or woman to woman. Okay, so if it's all the single dudes hoping for something more out of this, it ain't happening, okay? Unless you want to kiss me, okay? But uh, I'm not letting you. I've got a mask for that reason, right? So, so hear me here. Um, in the first century, this, was, this kissing, this greeting kiss was seldom done in mixed company. Okay, it was seldom done. Like, like if you were a Roman citizen, you would never greet somebody who's in the slave or the freedman class. You would never greet them with a kiss. They were so far beneath you, you would never do that. This was for family, for those on the same social pecking level as you are. This was a, a, it was for family, it was for those closest to you. But what Paul just did is he opened up essentially a new family. Like, essentially, he's saying the church, it is, it's filled with people of mixed social backgrounds and nationalities and races and genders. And he says, greet each other with a holy kiss. There are slaves in your church and there are the ultimate rich in your church and they should greet each other with a kiss. This was counter-cultural for them. Now, hear me. This is counter-cultural for us. This is a new family, one that transcends social constructs. This makes sense to us in the 21st century. And frankly, this little bit from the junk drawer might be one of the most important things for us in the year of our Lord, 2020, that we are a family and we ought to treat each other like so. Verse 21, verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Now that sounds weird, but it's not because Paul uh, was not writing this whole letter with his own hand. He was dictating this letter to a scribe. And it's like, now he like runs up to the scribe and grabs the quill or the pen or the, I don't know, papyrus, whatever it is, like first century grabs that writing utensil and says, I'm gonna write this ending with my own hand. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come which doesn't seem like a nice ending. It doesn't seem like the fare thee well kind of ending that you would expect, okay? But but it sounds harsh. Remember though the contents of the whole letter. He's saying here, remember that, okay, first he's talking to the church. He's not talking to those who are not a part of the church. He's talking to the believers, those who profess faith in Christ. And he says, hey, to those of you who are in the church, but you have no love for the Lord. Question, can you come to church and have no love for the Lord? Absolutely. He says, to those who come to the church and who are causing factions and those who are building with straw, those with unrepentant, ongoing sin, those who are dividing this place, let them be accursed. The word he uses is anathema, cursing. Let them be he ends with a warning. He said, hey, all that stuff that I just said for, for 15 other chapters, none of that was meant to be taken lightly. I meant very seriously what I said. If you're sowing seeds of discord, if you are anti-church inside the church, anathema. And then he says, maranatha, come Lord Jesus. It's a play on words actually in the Greek. And then he ends, verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. He ends the letter with grace and love. He says, curse, grace, and love. It, doesn't, it feels disjointed, but he's essentially, he's saying, hey, rem, just remember how messed up this place is. And, and yet I love you. Grace to you, love, if I'm, if I'm ending this letter, if I'm Paul, I'm ending this with judgment and anger, right? Not grace and love, but Paul ends with grace and love. And I think the reason why that's there, and this is important for us, I don't know where you're at in your faith, but maybe you've got a little bit of Corinth in you. I mean, maybe you believe in Jesus, but there's parts of you that are a mess, you believe in Jesus, but, but you've got this hidden kind of unrepentant sin that you just kind of store away somewhere. Like you believe in Jesus, but you just, you just know that you're not walking in that fullness. You're, you're living in this brokenness. You know you're not where you ought to be. And Paul's words for you and for the church at Corinth is, they're, they're not, well, sorry, anathema, period. Let him be accursed, period. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, sorry, you're too far gone. You've done too much. I'm taking away the moniker of church. The church at Corinth is no longer a church. It's just a gathering of random people, but you're no longer a church. If he ever could have done that, it was with this church. And the message of this letter and the message of it for us today is this. If you are, if you are far from him, if, you're, if you believe in Jesus, but you're not living in accord with that, he says, come back. He says, grace, love, come back, return, repent of your sins, turn away from this mess, return to following Jesus, turn to grace and love, turn away from the curse. It's not too late. This is what's on the table for the church at Corinth. He's writing this letter because he loves them. He wants them to be a healthy place. They are not when he writes this letter. And he says the same to you and to me. If you're out of sorts, if you're busted up and broken, he doesn't say curse. He says, come on, come back, return. This is what's on the table for us today. Grace and love. And that's the junk drawer. I don't know uh, what any of those pieces in the junk drawer have together to put together. I mean, I couldn't figure it out into a nice three-point sermon. So that's the junk drawer. Here's what I would say. I don't know if any of those pieces from the junk drawer are for you, but you ask the Spirit. Like, maybe something hits you. Maybe there is a piece out of that drawer that you're like, oh, that w- oh man, I'm struggling with trying to discern what God would have me do in this, and I feel like there's all this stuff against me, and maybe this is an open door I need to persevere in. Or maybe you're like, hey, I've really actually not been giving at all. I've not been generous at all with what God has given me, and I need to proportionally think that through. This is God's word. 1 Corinthians 16 is God's word. God's inspired scripture for you, for me, for the church. So if the spirit has pricked your heart with any of this, take that to heart, chew on it, digest it. So let me end by reading those last two verses one more time. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 22 and 23. I mean, sorry, 23 and 24. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Fathom Church, that is 1 Corinthians. Yeah, yeah. Next week, we start something different. You're welcome. Thank you. Let's pray together. <laughs> Lord, we do bless you. Thank you for, um, for what is, in my mind, undoubtedly um, not a coincidence that last year we would feel as the elders that we needed to study this book and that that this year as we started out in January and February with bright eyes digging into this text, not to know that that this year would end up the way it has with coronavirus and with racial unrest and with a a, a divided political scenario. Lord, Lord, with all of these things, I feel like 1 Corinthians has just laid over it so well things that we could never have planned have fit so perfectly. Thank you, Father, that your word is living and active. Thank you that it cuts us and that it builds us up. Lord, as we have studied these words, Lord, would you, through the power of your spirit, wield them like a, like a, like a surgeon with a scalpel, cutting pieces out of us that are, that are uh, not congruent with who you are, building us up, encouraging us up, lifting us up in areas where we need to be built up. Thank you for your word. The gift that it is to us. We will never tire of studying your word. Lord, whatever it is today that you may have spoken through your word to our hearts, may we set that deep into our hearts. Let let us gnaw on it and, and digest it and be changed because of it. Lord, we love you. We do look forward to what you have for us next for more grace, for more love, for more of your spirit working in our midst. We love you. We pray this all in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.